0: My name is Ethan Fordham. I serve as an elder here. If you don't know me, grateful to have each and every one of you here with us uh, this morning. So we've been at Genesis now for a few weeks, and I think I've realized something going through Genesis 1 and 2. I've realized just how far from the garden we are. In one sense, the world is in rebellion. The world has created its own garden temple and placed within it an image after its own likeness for the purpose of self worship. In another sense, the disordering effects of sin have left us in our world in a topsy-turvy state. As much as we and others rebel, we also know that something is wrong and there's a discomfort that any sane person would acknowledge. The simplicity of the garden is gone. This is why we can have a hard time looking at Genesis 1 and 2, looking at the garden that God made. This is why we can have a hard time looking at those things and saying this is very good. Because we don't live in the simplicity anymore. We live in the complexity. This is because sin is has run amok, that we don't live in Genesis 1 and 2. We live in Genesis 3. So this morning, as we come into Genesis 3, we consider sin. And in doing so, we follow Augustine's helpful call in his commentary on this passage. He said, we must carefully consider how the serpent persuaded the man and woman to sin, since this question is especially pertinent to our salvation. Scripture reports these things precisely so that we might now avoid them. So friends, let's open up the Scriptures. Let's open up to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. We're going to consider sin. We're going to consider our failure. But also we're going to consider God's gracious salvation. Amen? So the words will be on the screen. Follow along. This is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we come and ask that as we are affected by sin, Lord, that the light of your word would break in through our darkness that we might know, understand, believe, and obey the truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we were just in a garden, and we were just in a sweet garden, right? Like everything was perfect. It was nice, like, Like all of the avocados were ripe, right? None of them were as hard as a rock. Uh, (laughs) uh, It was awesome. The garden was incredible. And all of a sudden we have this turn from the man and woman were naked and not ashamed to a crafty serpent. Who is this? that's entered in on God's garden, this crafty serpent. Crafty is an interesting word, right? Sort of sneaky. It's interesting, crafty is a play on, uh, in the Hebrew for the word nakedness. That in some ways, that the man and woman were in a naked naked state and not ashamed, this crafty serpent comes in, that he comes in in a similar way to sort of undermine who they are, to sneak in through their innocence. So he shows up, and he starts asking some questions. Harmless enough, right? Just some questions. What's the harm in asking some innocent questions? So he begins, he says, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now I hope if you know the word, if if you've been paying attention the last couple of weeks, that you already see what's wrong with that question. That's not what God said. That's not what God commanded. And the woman knows that. So she responds. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she answers well enough. We'll have more to say on that in a minute, but she does answer well enough. He's like, hey, is God so stingy that he's keeping you from absolutely everything he created? And she's like, well, no, we have liberty to choose between any tree in this entire garden. It's just this one tree. Why? Because if we, touch, if we eat of it, we'll die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what was seemingly a seemingly innocent question has become a direct assault, a direct deceptive assault on God's command. You shall not die the death. No, 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 no. If you eat of it, you'll be like God. God knowing good and evil, wise in everything. Even like, look at how much like God you could be if you ate the fruit. Sounds pretty sweet, right? All you have to do is eat the fruit that God forbids you. And this is what we see sin does. Sin Deceives God's people by twisting God's command and undermining God's authority. Sin tells us that things could be otherwise. Better than the liberty of obedience to God, instead of simply acknowledging and accepting God's good command, sin causes us to rationalize and negotiate God's command. And our obedience to it. Right? Like, I know I'm married, but I think God's calling me to this other woman over here. I should be obedient to God, shouldn't I? Obedient to God's call on my life? Or I know God says to give to the governing authorities what is theirs. Hold up. Taxation is theft, isn't it? I mean, stealing is wrong, right? Maybe I'll just not report a little income. Really stick it to the man for God. Friends, this is the negotiating, rationalizing of sin that sin does. Rationalizing God's commands. Negotiating obedience. This is not what we are called to. We are called to see the deception. Recognize the deception and the lies of sin. Friends, how do we do this? Just as we said earlier, how do we avoid this? Friends, know in your heart and mind what God says. Know his commands. Store it up in your heart set it before you always shine a light on it just as the psalmist says your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path brothers and sisters only when we live in the light of the truth of god's commands will we avoid the deception of sin But we move on, the deception, right? Here does not end. We go on. Let's go back to the top, right? The serpent asks a simple question Did God actually say? Did he actually say that? Did you hear him right? Did God actually say? He's like a a kind of interrogator, he's like a, a lawyer. He's calling uh, witness number two, the woman to the bench. He says, ma'am, did God actually say? Now we know that God didn't actually command the, the thing that the serpent said. But that was his point. He was being deceptive. So what is he doing? He's, he's sneaking through her innocent state and looking for Weak points for weak spots. And as we saw, the woman responded well, but something happens that's intriguing. Instead of saying the consequences of eating was certain death, she said, lest you die. It's not super obvious here, but when God gave the original command, he basically said, if you eat it, you'll die, die. And if you know anything about Hebrew, the, the, the super, superlative, can't say that right this morning, the, the sort of repetition of phrases means that there's additional weight. We see it, holy, holy, holy. God's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Similar here, when God says, you'll die the death, he's not just saying, you'll die. He's saying, you'll die, die. But when the woman repeats the consequences, she simply says, you'll die. She seems to lessen the consequence in some way. God's command was intense. God said, you will certainly die. The woman says, no, we'll die. She's not necessarily misrepresenting God But it certainly doesn't come with the full force and weight of God's original, the consequence God originally lays out. Unfortunately, this is where the serpent goes in for the kill and takes a direct assault on God's command and the consequences of it by stating just as intensely as God did, but in the negative. God says, You'll die, die. The serpent says, You will not die. Die. Surely you will not die the death. After all, you'll be like God. That's not like dying. That's like living, isn't it? You want to be like God? Well, Guess what? God wants to keep that from you. He wants to keep you from good things. Serpent, like a crafty lawyer, uh, uh, like a crafty lawyer, (laughs) simply asks now, don't you have reasonable doubt to trust the goodness of God and His Word? This is what sin does. Sin gives the appearance of reasonable doubt concerning the goodness of God and his word. The woman should have said at this point, enough is enough, serpent. We know what God said. He said you'll die. He says you'll die the death. And you're coming in contradicting God. Go away. Enough of this. Be away with you. God said it, and that's enough. That settles it. To know God and his word should have been enough to end the conversation. But the doubt was already in place. John Calvin said, Because the desire of knowledge is naturally inherent in all, happiness is supposed to be placed in it but eve erred in not regulating the measure of her knowledge by the will of god and we all daily suffer under the same disease because we desire to know more than is right and more than god allows whereas the principal point of wisdom is well a well regulated sobriety in obedience to god right sin promises So much joy. So much happiness that we begin to doubt whether God wants us to be happy, wants to give us joy, wants to satisfy us in any way at all. Instead of insisting on the goodness of God and taking Him at His word, we fantasize about better things. Friends, We must learn to identify doubt by fastening God's good words to our heart and our mind so that when God says, this is what it means to be happy, this is what it means to be joyful, that our whole being comes in alignment with God's word psalmist says this he says how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word with my whole heart i seek you let me not wander from your commandment i have stored up your word in my heart that i might not sin against you friends we have to learn to identify the doubt and allow our minds, our heart, our will, and our affections to be aligned to God's mind, His heart, His will, His affections. Only then will the doubt, sin of doubt, which would cause us to doubt God, only then will we quell its noise. In our heart and in our minds. Unfortunately, though, the deception is in place and the doubt has taken hold. So the cycle towards sin begins. We read in verse 6 So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Look at the pattern. She sees, delights, desires, eats, and gives. Now, there's something about seeing, desiring, partaking, and giving that are good. In fact, those are simply good activities. Those are good things to see, delight, desire, and partake. But this kind of gets at the nature of sin a little bit. That sin isn't something It's nothing. Sin has no life in and of itself, but rather it's a corruption, a cancer that latches onto life and disorders everything, pollutes it, so that the seeing, delighting, desiring, and partaking become evil actions. Good things with evil ends, right? She saw with good eyes that God gave her eyes that were supposed to see like God saw. But now she is using them to see something God prohibits, to see it in a new way, a way that God did not intend. And the sight led to delight. God wants us to delight, God Himself delights. But instead of delighting in God, she began to delight in what God had not allowed. Delight gave way to desire. God wants us to desire good things. God himself desires good things. Desire is not wrong in and of itself. But she was desiring something God did not desire for them. Finally, desire produced the action of eating, of partaking. God wants us to eat. He wants us to partake. He gave them an entire creation to seed, desire, delight, and partake in. But she has done What she should not have done by seeing, desiring, delighting, and partaking in the one thing God had prohibited. Finally, she shares. She shares with her husband, who was either with her the whole time, or had come about at some later point. It's not entirely clear But that's not even, he ate. He also did what he ought not to have done. Sin's deception and doubt have produced disobedience. What can we say about the exact nature of their sin? I think the Christian tradition is fairly like, Uniform and saying that the serpent enticed them to pride, right? Forget what God said. You shall not die the death. But if you do this, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. No more dependence on him and his word you'll be self-made people. This is pride, isn't it? Elevating oneself above God, cutting off the cord of dependence. Peter Peter Lightheart wrote, we believe in the self-made man, the buffered self, the isolated individual. Every man is an atom, who has molded himself from the dust, embarrassed by the belly button that bespeaks dependence. Pride doesn't just say no to God. It says, God, I don't need you. It doesn't, I don't need you, I don't need your law, I don't need your word. In fact, God, you are not good, I am good. You are not just, I am just. Your name is Yahweh, the one who calls himself I am? Well, you are not, I am. That's pride. That's sin. And that is at the root of every sin. Sin leads to disobedience, which is a prideful attempt to dethrone God. This is like Samson Desiring a foreign woman from outside of Israel. Something God explicitly prohibited. What did Samson say? Get her from me, for she is right in my eyes. Samson was not seeing, delighting, nor partaking in what God wanted. We're tempted to think that sins are sort of like just silly little foibles. Little mistakes committed by well-meaning people. I tried, but I'm just so sinful. Shame on me. When we choose to sin or fail to do what we should do, we are simply asserting ourselves above the throne of God. Think of the example of David adultery with Bathsheba, the subsequent murdering of her husband, Uriah, all produced by his potential laziness, not being out on the field with his men like he ought to have been. David laments, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what was was wrong in your eyes. How could he say that? He potentially raped Bathsheba and murdered her husband. It's because every sin primarily is an offense against God. This is what sin does. We ought not To devalue or underplay the deception, the disobedience that sin is—it's rebellion. So, friends, how do we avoid such disobedience and rebellion? In some senses, we learn learn how to assess our choices to do what we ought to do and to avoid what we ought not to do. That which seems most pleasing to our eyes or heart might be the very thing leading us to disobedience. So we learn from Paul. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. How do we flee dethroning God? We submit to His will. We love it. We desire it. We pursue it. We live into the will of of our good God. Again, unfortunately, for the man and the woman, there is no going back. They are guilty of sinning against God and they now experience the corruption and disorder sin brings to their lives. We read in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. In Eden, their, their lives were supposed to be properly ordered to God, which then properly ordered their lives to one another. But sin has brought about disorder. They were supposed to desire in what God desired, they were supposed to desire what God desired, delight in what God delighted in. But sin has brought about disordered desires. And their hearts have turned inwardly. They were made to see things how God saw them. But now they are seeing something new. And it is not good. This is what sin does. Sin profoundly disorders human life. We are meant to live properly ordered lives to God, but something has gone wrong. We know there is disorder in our world and in ourselves. Right? We see in the world the disorder of war which is in its essence brought about by the disorder of human envy, the desiring for the for something that someone else has there's the disorder of poverty the people don't have what they need to survive while the corrupt consume more than they could ever need there's also disorder in the human soul not only we <clears throat> Making choices that we ought not to make, right? Showing that we are often not living a life properly ordered to God. But there's something else happening in us too a profound confusion that affects us in ways that we cannot control. The body attacks itself. Cancer, disease, the mind attacks itself. People live in a profound confusion about who they are as people. Right? And in this we see that there's sins that we should repent of, most definitely. And then there's the effects of sin. Right? Like, I don't, I, should, I, I don't know if anybody needs to hear this, right? but like, I have diabetes. I don't need to repent of my diabetes. And yet it's an effect of sin. It's an effect of sin. And there's so many ways in which our bodies and our minds are plagued by this reality. I think sometimes we look at choices, rightly so, We see the rebellion inherent in sin. And there's a a call, a needed call, a necessary call to repentance, to faith and turning to Jesus. I think sometimes there's a lack of compassion in the ways that sin profoundly affects and confuses our lives. So much so that what, our, what should our response be? But to enter into the life of sufferers and point them to a good God who wants to renew them. Who will one day, through the confusion and the disorder that is certainly not their choice, renew them and order them properly in a new heavens and a new earth. I'm so getting ahead of myself here. But friends, friends, Yes, sin needs to be repented of. But there's also sin that we need to have compassion for. Or rather, compassion for people who suffer sin's effects. Friends, there is now no place we can look where sin will not also be. This is the world we live in. This is who we are. All because sin has entered into the world. Sin deceives God's people by twisting God's commands and undermining God's authority. Sin gives the appearance of reasonable doubt concerning the goodness of God and His Word. Sin leads to disobedience. A prideful attempt to dethrone God and sin has profoundly disordered all of human life. Friends, what should we do in light of the disorder? The man and the woman had to ask themselves the same question. Right? They saw that they were naked. Before they were naked and not ashamed. And now they saw they were naked What choice would they make? What would they do? It says they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This gets at a fundamental theme in all of the Bible. They tried to cover their sins. Through their own work and their own effort, they took up their own tools And now tried to cover their nakedness, undoing the sin and the shame that they had brought. Fortunately, the attempt to cover their sin was worthless, and they could not undo the guilt nor the corruption. Friends, We cannot cover our own sins. We try. Even for Christians. There's still moments when it's like I'll do better next time. I'll believe a little harder. We cannot undo our guilt and corruption. So what do we do? What are we supposed to do Brothers and sisters, there's only one person who corrects the disorder and brought about by sin. That in the mercy of God, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, living in the deception, choosing to doubt, loving the disobedience, and living into the disorder, God sent His own son into the world to seek and to save the lost. Friends, Jesus Christ came not merely with the truth, but as the truth. He came to tell you the truth, to cut the deception away, to tell you the truth that you need a Savior. And that he came to save. And that his truth sets you free. Amen? That Jesus came to bring clarity where there was doubt. That we don't need any better reason to see and believe the goodness of God and his word than that Jesus sent, Jesus came to show us the goodness of God by dying on a cross. That his sin came in, into the world. That sin and death came into the world by partaking of the tree, through death on a tree, life comes into the world again. That Jesus Christ came to obey the Father and secure righteousness for the unrighteous. That He came a humble servant king of His Father. And that those who come to Him in faith are reckoned obedient, and righteous. Don't you see this salvation that we enjoy is not a work that we do. It's a work that Christ does. We are not saved by our own works. That's what Adam and Eve thought, that they could save themselves by our own works. That's what we do every single time. We think all we gotta do is try a little harder, do a little better. But God shows us that salvation is by works, though not by our works, only by the works of his son. Through his perfect obedience that he comes, and it's only by faith that we accept this. I don't know. Faith could seem like a work, but it's literally like a stopping. (laughs) It's a ceasing. It's a putting down our efforts and saying, Lord, you said you did it. All I can do is trust that you did it. All I can do is put my whole weight on those facts. And trust that you are indeed the righteous one who saved me from my sin. And that even though I disobey still, that that my salvation is not dependent on my obedience. It's dependent on Jesus' obedience. And that the love I receive is not a love that I first gave to you, but a love that you showed me in sending your son to die for my sins that your word broke into this creation and it spoke a word of peace. And now in our lives, we don't want to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, but in the sense that we hear when we confess our sins and receive the assurance of pardon, what are we doing but simply receiving? Lord, you are saying it, and the only thing I can do is accept it and put my full weight upon it. I don't know if you've ever fallen before, but you don't really do much when you fall. This is faith. Falling. Knowing that the mercies, the grace, and the love of Jesus Christ is enough. Amen? This is what it means to be a Christian. Friends, Jesus Christ came to undo the disorder. He came to undo this disorder and reorder all of creation and human life back to God. But as we fall on Christ in faith, what does He do? He picks us up, He bears us up. It's almost like were, we're like a dummy right? Like, like we've, 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 been, we've been drowning and we're just now coming back to life and he's bearing us up and you know what, what he's showing us, what he's facing us toward? The face of God. We were drowning in that direction. He bore us up and he put us before God again. And he says, my brother, My sister, father, your son, your daughter, do you see this proper ordering back to God to live before his face for us to say yes and to desire obedience and to live a life properly ordered to him? This is what Jesus does. He takes the disorder and he reorders it. He takes the death and he brings it to life. This is what Jesus has done. This is what Jesus is doing in each and all of our lives as we fall on Him in faith. He's always reordering us. Look to God. Look to God. Look to God. He alone is your happiness, He alone is your joy. Friends, Even as we're at the beginning of this great redemptive narrative. We just read the first devastating feature. Right? We just read about the fall. This is the fall of man and woman into sin. What is God doing? Even next week... Right here, we're just left with sin. The sin of shame and nakedness. But as they were disobedient to the law and sin came into the world, what does God do and say in our next passage? Alex will be preaching that. I'm giving a little bit away. But the Lord, as he does, breaks into a broken and corrupt world with his word. And he utters a word of promise. That he's going to undo what they had done. That though they clothed themselves, he was going to clothe them by the blood of the Lamb. And that one day, this lamb who came and defeated sin and Satan would again come again. He would come again to finish the job he started. To put sin, Satan, and death into a grave. Eternally and forever. That he would take that ancient serpent, the adversary, Satan, and thrust him into eternal fire. And do what? Make all things new. Even as my wife said yesterday to our unbelieving family, who we love very much, that as someone we love who did not know Jesus died can still say and give hope to those remaining that Jesus is going to come back one day, he's going to undo death, and he's going to wipe every tear from every eye. Sin and death will be no more. Neither will there be pain nor sorrow anymore. We will dwell with God forever. Friends, as you suffer sin's effects, as we often still choose to sin, at the end of the day, we have nothing to do but to fall on the mercies of God and trust that He's reordering us to obedience not so that we might live, but because we live. Friends, sin deceives, doubts, disobeys, and disorders. But Jesus brings truth, provides clarity, obeys perfectly, and reorders our life to God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Our righteousness, our hope, our mediator, our high priest, our advocate, the one whom you sent as an emblem of love to redeem and to save us. Lord, have mercy on us. Forgive us our sins. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Help us to live. As you call us, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we have the